All right, you excited for James? Yes? All right, I'm, I'm excited for James. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one of the Bibles that we have provided in the seats for you. We'll also put the scripture up on the screen. But we're going to be in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And then if you don't have a Bible at home and you're using one of these seat Bibles, please go ahead and take that home. And uh, it's our gift to you. James chapter 1. We have a lot, a lot of ground to cover. We're trying to finish by Christmas, and so we're going we're gonna to book it uh, through the book. But like I said, really, really excited for this. Um, while you're turning there, just to tell you a story, I'll never forget my, my first uh, Christmas with my wife's family after uh, we were uh, newly married, 2004. Um, I remember we're at her, her house in Western Mass where she grew up, and we're beginning you know, to open Christmas presents together. And I remember just being incredibly shocked as to how straight up her family is about their gifts. I mean, they're just very, very frank. And so what it looked like this particular uh, Christmas morning is my, my wife's mom, my mother-in-law, opened up a present uh, that my wife had uh, given her, and she opens it up, and she goes, oh, it's just beautiful with some kind of shirt. It's, it's, just, it's just beautiful. It never look good on me. This is just not my color, but it's beautiful. And I'm thinking, Are, what? Did, did that really just happen? And, and so I remember her then saying, hey, do you have the receipt for that to my wife? And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. And I remember afterwards talking to Becky and saying, are you okay? And she goes, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, the way your mom responded to your present. Are you, are you okay with that? And she goes, yeah, that's, that's totally fine. I mean, I, I wouldn't want her to, you know, pretend like she loved a shirt that she didn't love or that the color didn't look good on her. So she can take it back and get something that she would actually wear. So that's, that's totally cool. And so Becky was fine with it. And I'm thinking, this is so, so strange. And so on the flip side, I remember the next year having our first Christmas with her at my family's house. And it was an entirely different story. And again, my family just rolls entirely different than her family does. And so I think it was either my mother or my grandmother gives me a Christmas present. And I open it up, and it was a pair of khakis with pleats. Now, I remember when I opened them up saying something like, wow, thanks, these are great, you know? And I remember that night going up to the guest bedroom for, for bed and, and Becky laying in bed saying, Josh, I cannot believe you. And I'm like, what are you talking? She said, you lied to your grandmother. You would never wear those. I said, what are you, what? I, I didn't lie to her. I said, these are great. They're great for my grandfather, not for me, but I, I didn't lie. And I said, they'd look good on my, my grandfather's what I was thinking. But uh, I don't know, what would you have done? Would you have been straight up or would you have kind of, oh, that's wonderful. My wife is, is brutally, brutally honest. Not that she's ungrateful, but it's just in her family. That's how they roll. They're just straight up. And my wife assures me that, listen, if you will be straight up and you will be just to the point about everything like this, it's more helpful in the end, is what she's uh, assured of. She says, my, now I know I'll, I'll never have to buy my mother brown again because it's just not her color, and so I learned my lesson. And that's a, that's a good thing in the end, and she wasn't at all offended. And so that's just how my wife rolls, just very, very honest. And so now I, you know, I dress myself like a big boy from time to time, and I, when that happens, I, I'll walk out the door or start heading towards the door, and Becky will say, you're not leaving with that on, are you? She's just, she'll just tell me how it is. That's, that's not going to work. And so she saves me from getting arrested by the uh, fashion police. But this is, this is James. This is how, how James functions. He's just straight up, brutally honest, to the point. And we all kind of need this 
from time to time, don't we? We need somebody who can just tell us how it is, just straight up. And that's what James does. He challenges our mediocrity as Christians. He says, this is how it is. This is what you need to know. Which also leads him to being extremely practical. And so that's one thing that I just love about this book is that it's just extremely, extremely practical. And so for many Christians, it causes them to be very fearful of this book. Many Christians are fearful of this book because of just how practical it is, because it never actually does a lot of talking about the person of Jesus. It doesn't do a ton of talking about the gospel or the good news of Jesus. Instead, it just gets very, very practical, talking about how to live a life of holiness, how to live out your faith, because James just assumes that all of his readers, the people he's writing to, are Christians. Because if you look at the first verse here, it's directed at Jewish Christians. It's, it's directed at Christians who have been dispersed among uh, the nations outside of Israel. And so he just assumes, I'm writing to them, and so they are believers in Jesus, and they're following Jesus. So he doesn't do a ton of talking about the doctrines of Christ. He just gets straight into it. And so though James says less about Jesus than any other writer of the New Testament, he, he writes more like Jesus than any other writer of the New Testament. Though he, he says less about Jesus than anybody else in the, in the New Testament, he, he sounds a lot like Jesus, and his, his style and his tone is a lot like Jesus. And so just some, some thoughts on that. Jesus was incredibly frank, wasn't he? I love how sometimes he just gives it to the self-righteous, the prideful, the arrogant. And, and James uh, is, is very, very frank. Uh, Jesus was very, very Jewish, <laughs> And, and James clearly is very, very Jewish and talks quite a bit about the law. Jesus uses a lot of strong illustrations. And James uses a lot of strong illustrations. Uh, Jesus talks a lot about nature and agriculture. And, and so does James. A lot about nature and agriculture as his illustrations. Another thing that Jesus will do is he uses a lot of rhetorical questions. to ask questions, not really expecting an answer, but a question that's kind of probing. And James does that quite a bit as well. Another thing that Jesus did, that James does quite a bit, is Jesus often calls people to action. You'll see that throughout the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's calling people to action. And that's exactly what James is doing. Of the 108 verses in this little book, 54 of them are calls to action. That's exactly 50%. More or less every other verse is a call to action, call to go do something, go be somebody, just like Jesus who was constantly saying, get up, take your mat, follow me. Or he would say, deny your stuff, follow me. He would say, go and sin no more, just constantly calling people to action. And this is the style of James as well. Show me your faith by your, your actions. And why is James so similar stylistically to Jesus? The reason is because he was Jesus' half-brother. Now, they shared the same mother. They shared the mother Mary. Uh, but Jesus was virgin-born of Mary, as you may know. And so Joseph was not technically uh, Jesus' father. Uh, he was James's father. But too many Christians, what, what we'll do is we'll kind of deny or kind of discredit Joseph uh, because he wasn't you know, really the, the technical father of Jesus. But understand that, that Joseph uh, faithfully fathered Jesus. I mean, we can see that. Uh, in, in, in some of the gospel accounts that, that Joseph uh, faithfully fathered Jesus, that Jesus became a carpenter like uh, Joseph 
was, and so he spent much time with Joseph, as you can imagine, in the, the shop. We, we read the story of Jesus going to the temple with his mother and with Joseph, and so we know that, that they were bringing Jesus faithfully uh, to synagogue and to temple. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and he goes into the synagogue in his hometown, and in Luke chapter 4, he begins to teach, and people are upset, but we see that he had a home synagogue, and so he was faithful to attend uh, the synagogue growing up, much to the credit of Joseph and Mary. And so, though James uh, speaks little of Jesus in this book, we can know that, that he reflects a lot of Jesus because they were brothers, they shared the same uh, parents, and it's pretty understandable. They were raised by the same mother and father, they were uh, in the, the, the same modest home together, as children, this was not a, a flashy town, Nazareth. It was a, just a modest town, and so they were in a, a modest home together. I imagine them, much like my boys at night, I'll go and tuck them into bed and pray with them or sing them a song or tell them a story, and then I'll leave, and I'll come back to my surprise 10 minutes later, going to the, the bathroom, and I'll hear them in their bedroom, and they're talking on their bunks to each other and telling stories, and I like to stick my ear to the door and just listen to what they're saying. I'm picturing James and, and Jesus, who are the two older of the, the, the siblings, uh, doing this together, talking at night together. And so you can kind of get this understanding that there was, this, there was probably this, this, this closeness to them and this, this ability to connect that, that James has that many of the other New Testament writers uh, didn't exactly have. They were all inspired by the Holy Spirit, but this was a unique place that, that James had. They grew up in the synagogue together. They went to synagogue school uh, together. They probably even played in the yard together. I mean, this is such a neat thing to, to think through that James had with Jesus. Now, let's look at some scripture to, to, to kind of intro the life of this guy, James, a little bit and learn about his relationship, uh, particularly to Jesus. And so uh, we'll put some scripture on the screen for you here. The first one is Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 55 through 56. It says this. It says, is not this the carpenter's son? The people at the synagogue are, are noticing. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these teachings? They're amazed at him. He, he's just the guy that grew up. We know all of his family. How's he, how's he teaching like this and doing uh, these things. And so what we do learn from this passage is that uh, Jesus had four brothers. He had James, he had Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude, right, the one who wrote the second to last book of the, the New Testament. We also know that, that he had uh, at least two, probably three or more uh, sisters because it says all his sisters. Now, if it was just two, we probably would have said both his sisters. So he says all his sisters. So we can probably assume that he had at least three sisters. And, and, and so just picture this. Jesus grew up in a home with seven to eight or even more uh, children raised by Mary and Joseph. Jesus is the first of them because we know that Jesus is, the scripture refers to him as the, the firstborn child for them. And so the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is very inconsistent with these scriptures that they even claim as holy. And so it's important to see uh, just some of the um, the, the, the siblings of Jesus. We also read in, 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 in Mark chapter 3 here that by the time Jesus begins his ministry, much of his family thought he was out of his mind, as it says here. And when they, his family heard it, they went outside to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus has lost his mind. What's going on? Then you get to John chapter 7, verse 5, and it says, not even his brothers believed him. 
his brothers. At this point, his brothers didn't even believe that he was the Messiah. And then it all kind of changes at the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul starts to list the resurrection appearances of Jesus after he resurrects the life and the people he shows up to. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, he appeared to James. Now, your brother dies. You think he's crazy. He appears to you alive. So see, suddenly, it would take my brother uh, dying and resurrecting the life for me to call him God, and that's what it took for, for, for James. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 records the, 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 the followers of Jesus in the upper room after he's resurrected, appears to them, and then he ascends back into heaven. And, and it says this, it says, and, and these with, uh, all these with one accord uh, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so at this point, his, his brothers have come around, right? At this point, his brothers have come around. Jesus has appeared to James and probably the other brothers, and they believe that Jesus is, in fact, Lord, and they're, they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then Acts chapter 15, further down the road, we, we hear that, that James is leading the church of Jerusalem uh, at the Jerusalem Council. So much so is his power and his leadership in the church that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul refers to him as a pillar of the church. So these scriptures are very important because they really show us just kind of the, the, the chronological uh, layout of the, the life of this James. Now, with all this background in view, James' upbringing with Jesus, his rejecting of Jesus, his then turning to faith in Jesus, and then his leadership in Jesus' church. With all of this background in view, now let's read verse 1 of, of James. Here's what it says. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. I, I love this. I love this. This is so great that he opens up his letter with calling himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't, he doesn't pridefully flaunt his kinship to Jesus. Instead, he, he humbly describes his servanthood to Jesus. It sounds a lot like his, his brother Judas or Jude. If you go to the second to last book of the Bible, Jude, in the first verse there, Jude uh, opens his letter by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And so he doesn't even want to call himself brother of Jesus. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus and I'm a brother of James. And so both James and Jude, when they have the opportunity to, to say, I'm Jesus' brother, they say, I'm a servant of Jesus is how they like to, to open up their letter. And so I think that really for us qualifies the rest of the letter that we're going to look at for the next 10 weeks or so. Uh, I, I think it really qualifies it because we can see that James is, is brutally honest and James is, 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 is very frank with people. He, he talks a lot about holiness. He talks a lot about, uh, about living for uh, the Lord faithfully. And it's, it's not because he's some prideful, arrogant, sharp man, but it's because he serves the Lord Jesus Christ. He serves Jesus, and he wants other people to serve Jesus and follow Jesus. And, and he wants his hearers to, to grow up in the Lord and to really live a life that reflects the goodness and the grace of Jesus. So he is a servant of Jesus. He's a servant of Jesus. And then he gets right into it in, in verses 2 through 4. He gives no lengthy introduction like the Apostle Paul uh, would do. He, he gets right into it. So let's look at verses 2 through 4 now. Here's what he says. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Any of you ever at work uh, been required to take a sensitivity course right, at work? Apparently not James. He just gets straight into it, straight to the point. He's just right there. He's just, let's, let's go, let's talk about it. He says, I know you're suffering, but it's a good thing. Let's just go straight to it. It doesn't even uh, sound like he's, he's very sensitive here. He just says, I know you just lost your father. I know you just lost your, your, your mother, your brother, or your sister. I know that you've been beat for, for Jesus. I know you've lost these people and you're experiencing great persecution, but it's good for you, he says. Just get straight into it. He could have opened up much like the Apostle Paul and said something like, brothers, sisters, I hear of your suffering. Know that in all my remembrance of you, I'm praying for you. Could have said something real sensitive and real encouraging, but he just gets straight to it. Greetings. I know you're hurting. It's a good thing. Wow. It's just, it just how James functions. And he, he goes on to say, hey, and more is coming, but it's a good thing because it's going to perfect you. And again, kind of the overarching theme of this book is just practically living out your faith, living out a life of holiness. And so James says, we've got to get there. Let's talk about it. I'm concerned with holiness. I'm concerned with holiness. Let's go there. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. He says, in this life, you are going to have trials of various kinds, doesn't it? In this life, you are going to meet trials of various kinds. Is this not true in your own life? We have all kinds of different trials that come our way. Maybe your mind is already going there and, and reflecting on some of the trials that you've experienced in your, your, your own life. Do you believe if you haven't already experienced some serious trials in your life, do you believe that you're going to meet trials of various kinds? Because if not, you, you should. I think one of the best things that I can do for you is take the surprise element out of the Christian faith so that you're not deceived into thinking that because I'm a Christian, it's going to be easy. I think that's half of the battle, is just knowing that it is coming. It's coming. And so James gets straight to the point and starts to talk about it. He says, it's coming. You're, you're going to face various trials, and the people he's talking to have already been facing serious trials and serious difficulties. Now, James is in a really unique position to be able to talk to these people uh, about trials because he's seeing these people, his church, persecuted because of this movement started by his own brother. Imagine that. People are being persecuted and experiencing really challenging things because of this movement started by James's own brother. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, the Apostle Paul starts to list all of the, the challenges that he's been through as a, as a missionary and as a pastor. He lists all these things about being beaten, about being shipwrecked. But then he goes on and he closes. He says, but this is, this is probably the most challenging thing for him. My anxiety for the churches, he says. It's very challenging for the Apostle Paul. I feel that way for you guys as well. I find this, this kind of holy anxiety for you that it, it burdens me. When you're not walking with the Lord, it burdens me when somebody turns from the Lord. There's this anxiety for the churches that the Apostle Paul had. And so you imagine just how much this similar anxiety was weighing on James. He's the pastor, a leader of the church of Jerusalem, God's special city. His church is under all kinds of physical persecution, social persecution, political persecution persecution. 
from Israel and from the, the iron fist of, of Rome. And not only that, but he has to know that his brother started this movement. Because of his brother, these people are experiencing the persecution that he's experiencing and they're experiencing. And so the, the weight that they feel in their trials, you have to imagine that the James feels all of that and, and, and them, then some. And so he's in this really unique position to talk to them and to us about our trials. And he says this, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, what's a trial? You really even thought about what a trial is. Let me just give you kind of a biblical perspective of a trial. We'll put it on the screen for you here. A trial is a painful circumstance allowed by God to transform my character. You ever thought about it that way? It's, it's a painful circumstance in your life. It's allowed by God for the purpose of transforming uh, your conduct and, and your character. And again, some of you have already felt the pain. You know pain very well. Others of you, you are right in the middle of pain, and it's so real, you can taste it, it is right on you. And others of you, it hasn't been hard yet, but you need to know it's coming. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. So this lie that floats out there, that, that following Jesus is a promise for, for just ease in life, is, it's a lie. Right? You will have tribulation. And then uh, one thing I, I just want to make sure we understand is that pain is allowed by God. Understand that I'm fully aware that all kinds of questions come up when we talk about pain. Why is this happening? How could he allow this to happen? We need to understand that, that pain is allowed by God, that God is sovereign. He's completely sovereign. That means nothing is beyond his control. Scripture lays that out very clearly. You can name all kinds of passages. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is completely in control. However, he doesn't directly send the pain. The pain is a natural result of the brokenness of mankind. That we've turned from him, and because of that, there's pain. And, and, and so it's just the natural result. But see, though he's not the one sending it, zapping us, so to speak, it all has to come by him. So he at least, he at least allows it to happen. Some things he says no, but other things he allows to happen. He allows the, the natural outworking of our broken world and our, our sin, death and disease, and wickedness. He allows that from time to time because he knows that he can use it to transform us, our conduct and our character and, and deepen us, which is a wonderful thing. I'm so thankful that God doesn't waste any of the pain that comes our way. He wants to, to use it. If you haven't memorized Roman 8, Romans 8, 28, write that down and memorize it. This is an awesome memory verse. This is an awesome verse if you have kids to, to have them to memorize. Um, it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. That for those who are called according to his purposes, he wants to use you. He works all things, good and bad, challenging, trials, suffering. He uses it for, for good, for those who love him. For those who love him and who are called and want to be used according to his purposes. And so some of us can already look back. Some of you right now, your mind is already going back to some of the trials that, that you've been through. And you can see God's goodness 
in that trial, that somehow he used a, a terrible situation and he did some good stuff through it. And you can see that. You're, you're very aware of that. For me, most recently, I can honestly say that this, this journey of starting a church here in, in Boston has been probably the most challenging and painful thing I've ever been through in my entire life. I've faced things and felt things that I've, I've never faced before, I've never felt before. I can honestly say that there was a season of that dark cloud of depression over me. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, calls it the black mist. I just felt that for, for a, a season very strong. I had uh, some, some many, many sleepless nights, which, if you know me, never has happened in my life before. If I sit down to read beyond 8 o'clock in the morning, I will fall asleep on my book, and so, or 8 o'clock in the evening, rather. And so that's why even this morning I was up at 4.30 in the morning, just because I'm, I'm wired in the morning. But at night, I can't not fall asleep. I'm just out. But I've experienced a lot of sleepless nights as a result of just what we're going through. I've experienced a lot of confusion, a lot of heartache, a lot of tears that have been shed. But I can honestly say now, I can honestly say now that I have a lot of joy because of that pain. I really have a lot of joy. That God, I can see how God has brought unbelievable amounts of transformation in my own conduct and in my own character. And so I can have joy because of the, the trial. Now, what is joy? Let's think about joy. We went through the book of Philippians back in the spring, and we talked a lot about joy. But let me just make sure we understand what, what joy is. Joy is this. Joy is a supernatural delight in the, the person and the purposes of God. It's a supernatural delight in the person and purposes of, of God. It's this, this God-given ability that really comes from God. It's supernatural. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But this God-given ability to delight, to, to, to really be joyful in who he is and, and what he's doing right now, even through your, your pain. That you can see in the midst of it that he is still good and that he is still accomplishing his, his purposes. And you can be delighted by his purposes in the midst of all of the pain. That's, that's joy. That regardless of the circumstance, you can still know God's in control and God is good. And I find great comfort and great delight in that. And, and so maybe you can even look back to some of your own trials that you've been through. And you can say, with me, you can say, I honestly wouldn't be the person that I am today if it weren't for that, right? And so because of that, there's a lot of joy in that. And now the next time it comes around, and the pain comes, and the dark cloud comes upon you, rather than just waiting until you're out of it and seeing the good, you can be in it and you can see the good. See how that works? You can have joy in the midst of it. I think much uh, of, of Psalm 126. Psalm 126, we looked at that together this summer in our summer in the Psalms. It talks about how every tear that we shed is, is like a seed. That every tear that we shed, go, uh, shed goes into the ground and it has potential to sprout up something incredibly beautiful. Right? Like verses 3 and 4, like a life of, of steadfastness can come from you living out uh, the, the, the trials, right? You can have endurance in the race as you live through uh, the trials. And so God takes your pain and does good through it. Now, when you go through the trials, the scripture here says that, that they make you perfect and they complete you. So I love that James takes an entirely different spin on Jerry Maguire. Remember Jerry Maguire and the quote, you complete me, right? What James says is he says, here's the deal. Trials, you complete me. Trials, Com- complete me. Cancer, 
you complete me. Tragic death in my family, you complete me. Job loss, you complete me. Emotional pain, you complete me. Depression, you complete me. They shape you and make you who God wants you to be. It's painful, but in God's grace, he turns those things and he completes you. He makes you who he wants you to be. He's, he's shaping you through the pain. And I love that. Now, what James does now, as he's already established, you can have joy in your pain and you can, you can know that God's up to something. Now he gives us four things that we can do. So I just want to look at four practices for us in trials, four practices that will uh, help us to make the most of the trials as they come our way. Here's the first one. The first one is this. You might want to write these down. First one is count blessings. We've got to count blessings. Look at verses uh, 2 through 4 again with me. He says, count it all joy. Right, we're, to, we're to count it all joy. Have you actually done that with your trials? Have you actually counted it all? so that joy could come out of it? Here's what I mean. Have you actually taken the time to think through the things that God is doing because of your trial? Have you actually counted them so that joy can come from those things? So instead of simply dwelling on the, the awful thing that you're, you're experiencing, the, the, the terrible uh, situation that you're in, actually count the good in your life. Count what God could be doing and is doing through your situation. So you might want to ask, God, what? Like the who, what, when, where kind of thing. Ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? And he, he wants to show you. Maybe you can count by saying, okay, God, how can I display my trust in you in the midst of this? And what comes of that is, is a blessing. Or God, who can, I, who, who, who can I recognize that is watching my life? And so who can I really serve in the way I react to this situation? Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's uh, your, your kids. Maybe it's your neighbors. But who can I really serve in the way I react to this situation? Or, or, or God, who am I going to be able to serve as a result of what I've been through in the future? Because we all know that there are people that we're able to, to go to when we face something because we know that they've been through it, right? And so we can count that as, as, as a blessing. Or God, what's your greater purposes in this situation? God, how are you going to use this for good, for me and for others, for his church and for, for my ministry beyond? God, how can I better understand the pain and the suffering of Jesus in the midst of this trial? How can I understand that? And so these are some, some questions we begin to ask, and these, these, these questions lead to answers, and these answers for us are things that we can count as joy, and we can say, I'm great delight in what God is doing through my trial, that you can, you can count blessings. And here's the next thing that James gives us. He calls us to seek wisdom, to, to seek wisdom. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. Let's read it. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so we need to ask God to, to grant us wisdom. So here's probably the number one question that, that comes with our, our pain is, God, why? God, can you stop it? Stop this, right? 
But I think the question that we can historically look back through scriptures and see that God loves to answer with a resounding yes is the question of God, would you give me wisdom to deal with this well? Think of Solomon, right? His prayer for for God, give me wisdom. You can have anything. God, give me wisdom. And he grants it to him. And he's excited to give it to him. And so our first prayer in our trial shouldn't be, God, remove it from me. Our first prayer in our trial shouldn't just be, God, help me. Those are acceptable prayers. We should pray those. Jesus prays those himself. God, remove this cup from me. If there's any other way. But the first thing we need to ask is, God, give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom. How can I, how can I navigate through this trial in a way that honors you? Help me to do that well. Give me that kind of, of wisdom. And then he says this. He says, and ask in faith. So when you ask for wisdom, ask in faith. In other words, don't ask God with an accusatory tone. God, tell me what you're doing right now. What's going on? Not with an accusatory tone, but you're asking God with God. As Sindel said, God, I trust you. I I trust you. I know that you're in control. I have complete faith in you. Help me to understand what you're doing. God, help me to to live in a way that that honors you in the midst of it. I think that we should all learn to ask like Abraham. I always say that, ask like Abraham. Back in Genesis uh, chapter 18, God tells what he's going to do to Sodom. Abraham doesn't understand. He's obviously got some questions. And so he ventures to ask a question of God. But if we ask like Abraham, we're asking with great humility and great trust. And so Abraham says this. He says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes humbles himself, and then he goes on to ask the question, now God, what are you up to? Right? So we don't ask in such a way that, that we're not trusting him. We ask in a way that we're trusting him, but God, we want wisdom. We want to know what you're doing. We want to we grow through this in our trial, and we want to navigate our trial well. And so we need to, um, we need to really, in such a way, ask, ask wisdom like Abraham does. Here's the, the, the third practice in trials that we need to really learn. From, from James here. We need to evidence hope. Our lives need to display evidence of, of our hope. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. It says this. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls. And its beauty perishes, so, all will, uh, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. And so, in verses 9 through 11 here, uh, James kind of pulls a Jesus, doesn't he? He pulls a Jesus, and, and again, remember, James reflects a lot of Jesus' style. And Jesus does a lot of talking about finances, about money, because money and income and status uh, really seems to be one of man's greatest snares. And so, what James talks about here, what he's calling for here, is for us to display our hope in the midst of our trial. That our hope is not in our stuff. Our hope is not in our current circumstance. Our hope is not in the stuff that we hope to have for those who aren't there with much. But our hope is it's in Christ. Our hope is in our position in, in Jesus. And so for the person here in humble circumstances, whether physically there's an illness or financially or, or socially, That person's hope is in the coming, exalted, spiritual place that you have in in Christ. Likewise, for the person who is currently rich, circumstantially, their hope is 
in the opposite. Their hope is in their human frailty because it's not about how strong they are or what they have on this earth, but it's in their eternal security in Jesus. And so James is saying this in this passage here. He's saying, listen, no matter what your circumstance is in life, you need to let the world see that your hope is not in your circumstance, whether currently low or currently exalted in the world's eyes. You need to know that your hope is always in Christ. With that said, let's skip ahead to to 16 through 19 here. He says, Do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so the key verse here is, is really verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And so again, he's speaking to our circumstance, that, that whether it's a gift of prosperity or it's a gift of persecution, whatever it is, it's, it's from the Lord. And in both of those, we can display hope. The world needs to see our hope regardless of our, of our circumstance. They need to see our hope. They need to see us praising God in prosperity. They need to see us praising God in persecution. The world, listen, we, we think, God, if you give me money, if you give me this job, if you give me the house I want, the apartment in the city I've always wanted, if you give me this, God, I will so praise you. Anybody ever pray that prayer? God, I really think I should be, I should really have the spiritual gift of giving because, God, if you give me money, I will give a lot of it away, right? Anybody ever pray that prayer? You at least thought it, you liars. I know you have. And so here's the thing. The world expects us to praise God when things are going well. But they're stunned when we're ravaged by cancer. They're stunned when somebody dies. And yet we say, God is good. He's faithful. My hope is not in my circumstance. That stuns the world. And so they need to see evidence hope. They need to see us really evidence our our hope. They need to see that. Now the last practice and I want to close here, is this, is remain under. Here's the practice. We need to remain under. Let's read, go back to the part we skipped, verses 12 through 15. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life. I love that. The crown of life. We have life eternally. It starts the day you give your life to Jesus, the day you trust in what he has done. We receive the crown of life. We prove our, our faith with our actions, and we remain steadfast under trial, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire will, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's a nice, clear progression of, of sin there. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying, listen, you can either be strengthened by the trial when it comes upon you, or you can crack under the pressure and you can fall into sin. I pray that we will be strengthened by the trial when it comes and that we won't be the ones who crack under pressure and fall into sin. Now, for those who fall into sin, James makes it very clear. He says, listen, God tempts no one. God is not the one who who tempts you. God's plan with this trial is to use it for good and to strengthen you. Here's our part. Our part is to remain 
steadfast under the trial. We remain steadfast and, and not crack and fall into sin. I'm grateful for uh, this newer translation of the Bible, the original language, the, the English Standard uh, Version. I, I think it really gets it right here. The, the King James Version uh, says, he endureth temptation, but the uh, others will say, uh, persevere with temptation. But this the ESV here says, remain under trial, that we would remain steadfast under trial. And this is a powerful, powerful word in the Greek language, and I just want to kind of show it to you here. In, in the Greek language, it's this word, uh, hupomeno, right? It's this really cool word um, that I, I want us to, to see. This is the word in the Greek, hupo. Hupomeno, okay? This is a really cool word in the original language, and I love that the ESV calls it remain steadfast under. Now, I want you to understand that, that this word, hupomeno, uh, is divided into to two parts here. And, and, and uh, hupo means under. It's kind of a two-part word. And meno means remain. But we are called to remain under our trial. We're to remain under our trial. This word is a word that I pray would describe every single one of us. I pray that this word would describe our journey with Christ. That hupomeno is where Christian virtue flows out of. It flows out of a life of remaining under the pressure when it comes upon us. I'm going to do something I don't normally do, but I'm going to call my, my friend Peter up here. I pre-selected uh, this guy, kind of like those street shows in Boston. <laughs> Although I heard recently that down by the wharf, they did some kind of trick, and they were going to jump over some kids, and they actually landed on the kids. It was really, really bad, so I won't do that to you. But here's what I want to do. You're going to represent us, Christians. Good godly man, Peter here, loves the Lord. And for no reason other than the fact that I know where I'm going with this, I'm going to represent God. All right? And so here's what God will do, is he will allow the pressure to come upon us. And the call is for us, as the pressure is coming upon us, the call is for us to remain under the pressure. To remain under. Because here's what can happen. A lot of us can say, I don't want this. This is uncomfortable. Peter, you work out, right? Yeah. Obviously. That's why I called him, obviously. Have you ever bench pressed before? Or not bench pressed, of course you have, I can tell. Um, have, you ever, have you ever done squats before? Yes. Your first time squatting, isn't it like the weirdest it's just something? Because, you know, we, we, we curl things all the time, right? We lift boxes. But squatting is just this strange, never done it before. I've never, this is a weird feeling. I don't, are my knees going to break? In? It's just crazy. And so when, when, when we do that, we put all this weight upon us. If we just say, oh, I'm, I'm done. We don't have a spotter with this. It can be very dangerous, right? If we just kind of step to the side, what's going to happen? We're going to crack our knees. It's not going to be good. 
And so listen, the call is for us as Christians not to be broken, right? Not to step to the side and say, God, I can't handle this anymore. The call for us as Christians is to remain under the pressure. And when we stay under the pressure, what happens to our legs? They're strengthened, right? And a lot of times it's, it's not something that's very outward. A lot of people can't even see it initially, right? It's not a lot of people who walk around and say, look at his legs. He must work out. That doesn't happen very much. But it's happening. It's happening and you don't even realize it. So the call for us is remain under the pressure to stay in there when the weight is upon us, to not give up, to press on. I pray that we will be a people who remain under the pressure that God is allowing to come upon us. Because as we remain under, we are being strengthened beyond what we even imagine. We are being strengthened, and we don't even know it. And then when the, the, the weight is off, we see ourselves doing things that we never imagined that we could do. We can see ourselves encouraging people that we never thought we could encourage. The next time a trial comes upon us, maybe one that you thought, I would never be able to handle that. You find that you can handle it because you have remained under the pressure and you are build, building spiritual muscles. See, listen, Christian virtue flows from a life of hupomeno, of remaining under the pressure. We can give it up for Peter. Thanks. I appreciate that. That was probably terribly awkward for you. Listen. We have two options as Christians when the trials come. We can either rebel or we can remain. And you see when the trials come, a lot of people rebel, don't they? They crack under the pressure, start to complain. This is awful. We're to do all things without what? Grumbling or disputing, right? And so we can complain. Another thing we can do when the pressure comes upon us is we can lash out just short with everybody, mad at everybody, and mad at God, we can lash out. Another thing we can do is we can just split. We can just say, I'm done with you, God. Bail on God, right? When you split and you come out from under that weight, what happens? Crack, break. It's not good. You do not want to come out from under the hand of God. You do not want to come out from under the hand of God. See, sometimes we might complain and it's sinful, but we're not ultimately turning from the Lord. And some of us can lash out, and that's sinful, but we're not turning from the Lord necessarily. Remember I had this friend who, when he bench-pressed, he screamed at the top of his lungs. He'd scream at his spotters. He was just a mad guy, right? So he'd lash out. Some of us will do that from time to time, and we need to repent of that. But the worst thing we can do is just split and bail on God altogether. I'm praying that none of us would, would do this. And then some of us, we can fold under the pressure, just kind of the attitude says, God, just run me over. I'm done. The call is for us to, to remain under his hand. Hupomeno. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 is, is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. And it says this. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that what? So that at the proper time, he will exalt you. See, if we will remain under the hand of God and say, I'm, I'm humbled by this, God. I don't get this. I'm trusting you in this. This hurts. But I know your hands are on my shoulders. I can feel it. I know you're there. At the proper time, he exalts us. At the proper time, he lifts us up. For some of us, that will be in this life. That in this life, the cloud will lift and we can see it. For others of us, 
Our exaltation might not come till we're before him, but it's coming. This life is shorter than you can ever imagine. It's coming, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. And so I pray that we will not rebel, but that we will remain under the trial. Remain under the hand of the Lord and let him do his work in us. Let me pray for us all. God, we love you. And God, we know that you are in complete control. And God, for those who don't quite get that yet, Lord, would you do your, your work in their heart? We give them eyes of faith. God, I pray that we would be a people who navigate trials very well because we're living in your strength. God, do that work in us. Lord, help us to see the blessings that we have and the blessings that you're bringing about through the trial, the way you can bless others through our, our pain. May we be humble enough to receive that and loving enough to receive that so we can serve others and serve you and know you more. God, help us to seek wisdom and to pray and to ask you for understanding, not neglecting to ask you to remove it if it be your will like Jesus did. Lord, may we have true wisdom in navigating our trials. And Father, I pray too that people would see our hope that it is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness and not in our status on this earth. Whether wealthy, whether poor, anywhere in the middle, we don't know why we were born into this country and not in the third world. But God, may people see that our hope is not in our status and in our circumstance, but it's in you. And finally, God, help us throughout the course of our lives to stay under your hand and to be strengthened by whatever you bring our way. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Listen, uh, I want you to know, I want you to be comforted by the fact that Jesus is with you through it all. And some of us have never, ever given our lives to Jesus in this room. And if that's you, I would call you to trust in the Lord Jesus who has walked this earth perfectly. Scripture says he was tempted in every way that you were. So he knows your pain, he knows your struggles. But yet, he was without sin. And then he died a sinful death, a sinner's death that he didn't deserve for us. So that if we would trust in that death as our substitution, we would be made right with God. And then he resurrects to to life again. And he now is seated at the right hand of the Father as king and wants to be king of your heart and king of your life. And some of us need to say yes to Jesus and turn to him and trust in his person and his work on our behalf. For you, if that's you, in the best way you know how, as we sing this song, as we close out this time this morning, I would call you to to call out to him and he hears your prayer, prayer of faith. You can become a Christian. He'll begin to change your life. Not that it's easy now, but that you have him walking through it with you. And for those who love him, you can know that all these things are working together for good. A lot of comfort in that. So I would call some of you today to become a Christian and to communicate that to us if you would. Come talk to me afterwards. I would love to hear that. Talk to somebody else that you came with that you know. That would be incredible.